Well, howdy. Welcome to the Real Leaders Podcast. Uh, I am here today with uh, a good, good, good friend, uh, Larry Osborne. And I call you Pastor Larry because I see you as a pastor, but everybody else just calls you Larry. And I was thinking about it. Uh, I think we first met, was it at a leadership network, young leaders meeting? So this 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 tells everyone this was a long time ago. Um, how many, do you, do you have any idea how many years ago that was? Well, probably about 20, because uh, I think we were in New York, and Bob Buford uh, said, hey, a guy named Mark Driscoll wants to talk to you. And we, uh, you know, people forget, but we kind of, uh, had started the uh, video venue multi-site. We were kind of the first ones. And so everybody was looking at us and coming to us. And uh, yeah, I think we had lunch or dinner. I remember sitting in a restaurant and uh, talking about the growth of your church and the option of multi-site, what it looks like. And video and all that kind of stuff. I remember that's why I wanted to talk to you. And then what we ended up talking about was marriage, family, making sure that my wife, Grace, was a priority, that our young kids were a priority. And honestly, I just, I mean, I guess that's when I developed my man crush on Larry Osborne. I was like, I love this guy because he's asked, everybody else is asking, how big is your church and how fast is it growing? And you're asking, how is your wife and how are your kids? And I was like, man, those are those are really important questions, uh, the most important questions. Yeah, and as I recall that I had just had a little note from my uh, my youngest son, kind of star athlete thing, and had written a note about, boy, I wish Coach Tom could have heard this sermon, you know, the day before or the Sunday before. It was in my wallet. And, uh, yeah, you were talking about the number of kids you want, and I think I love Saturday night services. They make multi-site so much easier. Uh, but in your case, I think I – suggested it's not good for you with the vision you have for family and all that to do a Saturday. Uh, and you'll have to decide you want a few thousand more people or a card like this. And I turned that card and, you know, gave it to you. And as I recall, you never did a Saturday night service, right? Everybody thought that was crazy. Yeah, I did not. And, uh, and, and we are now at the Trinity church in Scottsdale and we are going to start a Saturday night, but I waited till all my kids were older. And so now, um, Three are graduated and uh, two are in high school. And so they drive themselves and student ministry is going to be on Saturday night. And so they're like, dad, we're going to go to Saturday night and, and go to students and serve. So I was like, well, okay, if you can drive yourself and we can go together as a family. I'm fine with that. But I wasn't fine, you know, preaching five, six times on Sunday and then adding Saturday night and then missing all of my kids' sports events and games. But we're beyond those years now to where that's not that's not our rhythm. So things have shifted. Yeah. And that's like for me, Saturday nights were awesome because I, I'm the kind of guy who can just walk in five minutes before the message with the prep I had during the week. So I could be at all those games and everything like that. And so I always push Saturday night. But again, the family and all that, that determines at the end of the day, not what grows my ministry bigger, but what makes my number one ministry better. Yeah. And uh, it's a different advice for different people. Yeah. Well, and I guess that's a good pivot into the conversation. Um, some years ago, we were in your office and you pulled out a laminated cart. So I knew that this was special. And I, I would call it, you know, the uh, Proverbs from Larry. I don't know what you would call it, but it was short leadership statements. And I know you've worked with pretty much every, you know, team and tribe of Christian ministry. You're one of those guys, you, you work across the entire spectrum, very non-tribal. And you said that over the years in your travels and pastoring your own church, 
you kind of came up with some some leadership lessons that were nearest and dearest to you. I think at the time you gave some to senior staff or staff. And so I was wondering if you still had the uh, laminated card, if you've you know made any many any updates, if you have now first and second and third Larry or where we're at on that. And if so, if you'd be willing to share just some of those leadership axioms, because they were super helpful. I still got my laminated copy at my desk in my house. Yeah, I still have what you, it was is a little laminated desk. It still is on the whiteboard in my office. It's in the corner. You know, I can stick something uh, there. I, I call it Larry Osborne's 10 leadership axioms. Uh, and uh, I just say that because people ask for it sometimes. And so they know where it came from, but it's just, uh, a, a composite of things that have, have guided me over the years. And they're really not, if you said, Hey, what are the most important things? Well, then love God, love your, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that we spiritualize, if you will. I tried to just sit down many years ago and say, what are the lessons that I've been taught by my mentors? I've been taught by scripture that I'm so easy for me to forget mm-hmm. and, and not try to get crowded with the 10 most, some of which are obvious, I don't need written down, but what are the ones I need to remember? And then I think I can honestly, and I, as I look at them now, I go, yeah, I think I live by them. So yeah, that's what they are. Do they, do you pull them out with you, your team? Like when you've got decisions to make or, or is it just more guiding principles to keep you down the fairway? Yeah, there, I call them plumb lines and plumb lines. Uh, they could change over time. These haven't. Uh, but they just kind of tell you how to keep the, the fence straight. Uh, and, and so they really should reflect more the reality of your life, uh, that, then they're, they're not aspirational. Okay. Okay. They're mildly aspirational, but they're the things the Lord in my mind, when I do plumb lines or axioms, they're like, no, what is not, what do I wish I could somehow get to, you know, lose another 15 pounds. They're like, what has God taught me and what do I need to remember? So I stay on this path. Hmm. Cool. If you're willing, they really are a description of like, I hope this is who people would say, yep, that's Larry. Yeah. And I mean, it just, I'm looking forward to you sharing them in just a second. Then there are, there are others like, I think Jonathan Edward had his, you know, long list of aspirations as a young man and they're very, they're not bad. They're good. We all love, you know, Jonathan Edwards, but they were very long. They were very big and they were, you know, they were very much, you know, here are my 12 Everest to climb in my lifetime. And, uh, and what I, and I, you know, I appreciate that to some degree, but I think for the average leader, they're like, yeah, I just need some, some practical things that keep my heart North, keep me encouraged, keep me wise, keep me focused on priorities. And they're good sort of gauges to put on the dash of the car of your life. And if one goes off, that's something to pay attention to. Yeah. And, and like, I, that's to me, it's the difference between highly, I think it's great to have highly aspirational. I hope I read the scripture <laughs> aspirationally saying, man, you know, not binoculars to see how someone else is doing this passage, but a mirror to see how much further I have to go. But at the end of the day, when it comes to plumb lines and I make them up for other things besides just my life, uh, I think I've got it right. If somebody who knows me says, dang it, that really is how you live. Mm-hmm. And then I go, okay. Those, that's the statement of my values. Cool. Well, uh, if and you're slightly different. If you're willing to jump in, I, I think sure. everybody's probably got a pen now and ready to take notes, my friend. <laughs> okay. And, and again, they're almost in no order. They're kind of like vital signs, you know, uh, respiration and, and heart rate. If somebody collapsed, you don't go, hey, don't worry. 
they're not breathing, but their heart rate is okay right now. Uh, they're all equally important. So you could shuffle this and make it any order you want. But the first one for me is that a, a, a throne is made secure by love and faithfulness. Comes out of Proverbs 20, 28, where Solomon says that. I, I've always treated Proverbs as Solomon's uh, gathering of wisdom for son Rehoboam, which unfortunately wasn't followed. But uh, I love those two things, love and faithfulness. Uh, if I have those things as a leader, people aren't going to be coming with a coup. And uh, when they feel like I don't have those things, where in reality I, I'm being misunderstood or no, I've really messed up, then the throne's not very secure. And, you know, love is simply putting the needs and interests of others above my own. And faithfulness is predictability, which is, I think, an important one we don't think enough about. <clears throat> when we say God is faithful, uh, we mean he does what he says. And I think sometimes as leaders, we can be like that drunk dad. You don't know what you're getting today. Mm -hmm. uh, when we find ourselves in an unhealthy space or we're exhausted or whatever. And so love is kind of obvious. Uh, but the faithfulness, can you figure me out, I think is important as a leader. Uh because people have a hard enough time figuring out a leader. And when I'm unpredictable, uh, it, like I said, it's like the drunk dad. I got a great dad one day and, and boy, he's really mad the next day. Um, so that to me is uh, what I, I see as uh, love and faithfulness. Uh, because you can figure out all kinds of different personalities, introverted, extroverted, whatever. But you got to be consistent so they can figure out how to work with you. And uh, they got to know in their heart of hearts, it's about them. It's not about you. You know, one thing you bring up with the predictability, I think if you're not, you know, consistent, predictable, it makes it very hard for other team members to make any decisions. And then you mm -hmm. end up having to make every decision because they're like, well, I never know what he's going to decide. So we got to check with the yep. leader. And I think that leads a bottleneck in the organization because they can't carry forth your values if, if those are inconsistent. It also creates fear, which means they won't make decisions because they don't know how we're going to react. And that's why I say usually uh, unpredictability is a sign of lack of health. Hmm. You know, it's like I said, we're grouchy, we're tired, we're overextended, whatever. And, uh, I love it. We say, well, that's not the real me. Where in reality, when I'm exhausted, that is the real me. The rest of the time I have the energy to fake it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, in so many ways, that predictability is, uh, is, is important part of trust too. Okay. Uh, you know, number two. So the, okay, go ahead, the second one is ne never complain about my lot as a leader, uh, which is so easy to do. Complaining flows from comparison or loss perspective. Uh, that, you know, uh, we can be like that uh, major league uh, player who gets a great contract and is thrilled with it till somebody not quite as good as him gets a better one. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're complaining about what they just recently had thrown a party for. And then the other is a loss of perspective. Uh, I always try to remind myself, yes, ministry is hard, but the people who say it's the hardest job in the world, I often say you never had a real job. Mm -hmm. uh, because if I'm in vocational ministry, obviously every believer is in ministry, but if I'm in vocational ministry, I'm getting paid for what I used to do for free. Yeah. And it is so sad that I forget that over time. Uh, and every job has toilets to clean and every job has uh, unfairness and, and just all kinds of stuff around it. So uh, I, it really comes also out of first Peter. I wrote uh, uh, 
um, lead like a shepherd out of first Peter five. And one of those things is not under compulsion, but willingly eager to serve. And that's what I mean by not complaining about my lot as a leader. If I have a lot to complain about, well, then go do something else because Jesus has called me to teach the word and disciple. He will love me just as much if I do that in the marketplace as if I do that in the church. So no complaining rule, I call it. So for those leaders, and I think you and I both know a lot of pastors in particular, they don't, they don't love their church. They don't love their role. They don't love their situation. What would you say to those guys who they are in ministry, but it, it's just, they're not enjoying it. It's not working for them or it's not working for their family. And they're just, they, they feel a little bit stuck and, and you can almost sense it's like a balloon that's slowly losing altitude. Mm-hmm. You know, just their motivation I, continues to decrease. Yeah, I think a lot of that flows out of the fact that we have lost a biblical understanding of the priesthood of believers. Hmm. The moment we elevate vocational ministry, we've done something really crazy. Uh, it's another role. The whole body is needed. Uh, frontline ministry actually is during the week. And we need to be a church for Monday, not a church for Sunday. Uh, where everything we're trying to do is turns everybody into an elder church leader, small group leader, whatever. We need to make Daniels. Uh, we need to make Nehemiahs. We need to make people who go out in the marketplace and lead well. But if I think the discipleship ladder, the top rungs of it are not getting more like Jesus, but are becoming a leader and then a leader in the church and then a, a top leader in the church, well, then I feel like I've failed if I've left that position. And so until I understand the priesthood of believers, that Jesus will love me just as much if I'm pouring concrete and discipling people and do whatever gift I have, service, teaching, leading, whatever, using it, uh, I'm going to be stuck. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've, I've got this horrible lot in life. And I, I tell those guys, and uh, like, you don't have to be in vocational ministry. What you have to be is in ministry. Uh, so you hate the vocational part, quit. And... Uh, it's it's not the top rung. That's a that's a lie of our culture. Yeah, and part of it is too. If you are you know working a job and volunteering, you actually get to do the parts of ministry that you really like, and you don't have to do the other parts you don't. But if you are an employee, you need to do kind of the whole job oh. description. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, people are always shocked. My quote call into ministry, and again, we have different measures of it, Mark. But my call into ministry is basically. Uh, <laughs> I was preparing for one thing. I started teaching Bible studies. The house filled up and a church came to me and said, will you be our youth pastor? Mm -hmm. What's that mean? We will pay you to teach Bible studies and do some social events. I said, I don't even need to pray about that. Are you kidding me? You're going to pay me for what I do on the two nights that I don't have my job in school. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're going to, for free, you're going to pay me. And that went well. And another place came and said, we want you to do it full time. And I just, I feel like all along it's, I, I'm the most lucky guy in the world, even though there's been horrific hard times, there always are in life. I'm, I, I, I would do this for free. Don't tell the elders, but yeah, we'll edit that part know. of the podcast out. We'll, we'll cover your, your, your yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, willingly, not under compulsion, take a break and Jesus will love you just as much. If you love him just as much. Mm-hmm. Number so. three. Number three is never toot my own horn. Uh, accept the respect and praise of others. Don't make people fit. You know, somebody says, oh, that was, you know, that was just awesome. They go, oh, that, you know, 
no, no, no. Or, you know, somebody praises you and you push back that, oh, that was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I always want to answer, well, wasn't that good? Uh, but uh, accept the respect and praise of others, but don't demand or seek it. It'll rot your soul. Uh, and that's, again, right out of Proverbs uh, uh, 27, 2. Well, I can't uh, speak to this because I praise you. I publicly failed this for two decades, so I'm not going to try and even <laughs> add to this. But um, how would you respond when someone is in ministry and, and they minister to someone, someone really loves them? Maybe it was Bible study or leading worship, whatever sermon. They come up and they're, man, thank you so much. Changed my life. How do you respond to that? Without, without I, uh, yeah. Yeah, puts them down if you say, oh, no, no, that wasn't me or, you know, that was God. Like I said, man, it's, well, it wasn't that good, dude. Uh, I, I always say some version of this, thank you so much for your encouragement. Hmm. I appreciate it. Because I do appreciate it. It's kind. It's, it's nicer than the rip on your letter. Uh, but when I start demanding it, demanding respect instead of accepting respect or seeking it, you know, that's one of the reasons, and, and I understand honor culture and all that, and there's a lot of beauty in honor culture, and too sad we lost it. But that's part of why primarily in life I've gone around as Larry. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's a soul check. I remember I was speaking of something, and I, I most people don't know it, but I have an earned doctorate, and everybody was Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so. They were making a big deal in this particular environment, and I'm, I'm like Larry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and not because I'm saying, Hey, no big deal. And, and I, I said, now, why does that bother me? Uh, so I think there's soul checks to say you can accept praise, but unless you're Jesus, you can't demand it. Yeah. Uh, and unless you're Jesus, don't seek it because it becomes a drug, a dopamine, you need more and more and more of. Hmm. And do you think sometimes the way that we seek it is we, as leaders, open-ended questions. So what did you think, you know, and what was your blah, blah, blah in that experience? Do you think that we can go fishing in the conversations for flattery, for attaboys? And if so, you know, how do you mitigate against that? Because we're all insecure and some of us just, totally. you know, some of totally. us fight it more than others, but we all struggle with it. Well, you know, if it's an honest, what did you think? where people can tell me that wasn't your best. I love that. So that's the hard part is I don't want to go through life. Oh, I just did it. And it's just me and Jesus because I need the feedback of people positive and negative. So for me, I'm more concerned about just never tooting my own horn. The the phrase that leads this one, uh, accepting the respect and praise of others, but not demanding or seeking it. Um, and those are things like I, my temptation was to step in again. This was an honor culture, which, a couple of people were putting themselves up and there was a sense of putting me down as not being on their level hmm. in, in that conversation. I'm talking about that place I was speaking and it was very tempting for me to just kind of impishly smile and say, well, you know, I've got to earn doctor too, if we're going to call this. Yeah. And I, I remember just a little voice of Jesus. No, this is your chance to find out what it is like to be disrespected a little bit. Mm-hmm. Shut up. Hmm. Uh, so for me, it's, it's more than not tooting my own horn when I want to say, well, well, I did that too, <laughs> or I did that first or whatever it would be. Okay. Well, thank you. And, uh, I think every leader that's an issue. And I think in some cultures, like you talk about, there is almost a ladder 
and the goal is the, the more you demonstrate success and are awarded and honored for that, the more quickly you get to climb the ladder to the next phase. And it, it seems like when there's, a, when there's a structure in place that encourages that, uh, it becomes a very political, very competitive environment very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. It's what Jesus said about, you know, setting them back and let them bring you to the front rather than sit in the front and find out, oops, look who's here. Yeah. We've all had that experience. You know, you're in a conversation with somebody and you're kind of puffed up a little bit until you find out quietly, like they're like 10 times better athlete than you ever were, or their church is a hundred times bigger than yours or whatever it would be. Uh, and so I love that. Just like I'll sit in the back. And if he has me there all night, that's cool. And if he brings me up front, that's cool. But I'm not going to tell somebody, Hey, by the way, that, Head table up there. I'm supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Number Never four as well. Yeah. Number four. four. Four is four is love is more important than knowledge, passion, or sacrifice. Uh, I think the more serious we get about Jesus, and the more knowledgeable we get in a culture where, uh, let's admit it, in Christian circles, uh, being a good reader uh, and being a good student has somehow been elevated as the quintessential tool for spiritual maturity. Uh, so there's this. Just insidious thing that says the more you know, the more passionate you are, and the greater your sacrifice, uh, the more Jesus is pleased with you. And yet that's just not what he said. Even in the famous passage of Revelation 2, 1 to 7, the church at Ephesus lost its first love. We we preach it as if it was passion. But the Greek word there is agape, the same thing used in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, which is a whole bunch of stuff I can do to my enemy. I can do whether I feel like it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, at the end of the day, am I loving God? And if you love me, you'll keep my commandments is how he defined it. And if I'm loving others, putting their needs and interests first, God's pleased with me, even if I misquote the verse. I haven't got all the doctrine down perfectly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing some things dutifully instead of passionately. I mean, that's part of real relationships. You go through those seasons. So, uh, and, and all of those are worthless without love. And too many times I've heard people say, well, I'm not as loving as I should be, but I'm right. Yeah. Oh, I don't think Jesus, that's not going to pass the little smiley face star test with Jesus. Well, you talk about, so you, you mentioned the three, knowledge, passion, and sacrifice, and certain teams and tribes are more than knowledge. Did you get the degree? What seminary yep. did you go to? Did you read the right commentators? Are you using the right Bible translation? Some are more passion. You know, do you sing? Do you pray? Are you filled with the spirit? Are you up early meeting with the Lord? You know, are you enthusiastic? Are you optimistic? And some are sacrifice. You know, did you take, mm -hmm. you know, the lowest paying job? Did you sell everything and go on the mission field? You know, um, you know, are, are your kids all, you know, wearing secondhand clothes? Are you, are you sending all you can back into the mission field or into the kingdom? And it seems like different teams almost, it's almost, as you bring it up, not to be, I want to be careful how far I go with it, but it's almost like the Galatians. It's like, what's the extra thing that you have that makes you varsity? Right. No, very much. And, and a lot of these have come out of either things mentors taught me, things I learned from my dad and the home I was raised in, uh, scriptures that, you know, every now and then they jump at you and just pound you. And some come out of the tribes. I, I, I believe that every leader, if you look back, big L leader that makes a significant mark, if you look back at them, their vision is made up of two things, 
the worst things they experienced in Christianity, and they want to prove it doesn't have to be that way. And the best things they've experienced, they're trying to recapture. Mm -hmm. And God uses those two things to create a new uh, personal vision. And and for me, I grew up in a knowledge tribe uh, impacted with passion and sacrifice. Kind of all of those things were how people were judged, and it just was not loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, it was you know, love was considered like the extra credit thing. And and I just grew. My ministry has always been about no. I'm blessed with knowledge. Uh, I I can fit some of those other things, but I don't want to stand in front of Jesus and say, "Look at those letters on my jacket," uh, because He's going to say, "Well, can I talk to your kids? Can I talk to your wife? How about your staff? You know, your neighbor? How about that one?" Hmm. It's like, oh no. <laughs> um, Gosh, any I- any. I was going to say, it's just, it's, it is, frankly, it's just, it's convicting in a healthy, in a good way. I mean, because they come to Jesus and they're like, all right, give us the tweet of the Bible. He's like, love God, love people. And sometimes as pastors and ministers, we can think, you know, did I know the Greek? You know, did I balance the budget? Uh, you know, did I lead the board? And you're like, I, oh, I forgot to love. Um, mm-hmm. And we all know what the scriptures say about that. And, uh, and I think sometimes as a leader, I think your performance can be a way of excusing your lack of love. Like I wasn't very loving, but I was very effective. And I would say in the American church and, and in my own heart and history that I would say guilty. I, I see that even as you're sharing. Yeah, and it's it's because we always wanna find a way to create a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And that's a culture, Christian and secular we live in. And so we wanna find our place in it. So we fight for more knowledge or we hear somebody's sermon that's really good and they got one little piece of theology or a verse they exegeted improperly. And we want to throw out, it's like, oh yeah, but it's like, well, really? Uh, and a part of it is, I, I, it's not in this, but it's this idea of the more I can go through life with a mirror instead of binoculars, it is so easy, I found early on in my spiritual life to turn the Bible into a set of binoculars to check out how everybody else is doing instead of a mirror that, you know, to this day humbles and breaks me. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Number five. Forgiveness is not an option. It's a requirement. So uh, I had a mentor who used to tell me this little phrase, go toward my enemies. If they remain enemies, move on, but go towards them and seek to overlook criticism, slander, and personal attacks. Uh, you know, I have no Google alerts on myself. The last thing I want to know is some, blogger or whatever went after me because of what I did, who I had speak at a conference, you know, what I did, you name it. It's like, really? Uh, I love that Ecclesiastes passage. I think it's chapter seven where he says, don't listen to every word your servants say about you for, you know, that you too have (laughs) been highly critical or cursed others. Yeah. Um, And, and so the more I'm seeking you know, and, and feeling the unjust attack, the more than I get on the attack back. So I find a lot of attacks. If I just stay in the house, I don't even know they're out there graffitiing it. <laughs> well, and for ministry leaders, families, I, I think sometimes the wife and the kids, they, they, they see that the attack is coming on the, the leader or the criticism, you know, right or wrong. And they're not in a position where they get to respond. So they need to remain silent, but they don't really get an opportunity to, to heal up, to forgive, to move on. 
Because oftentimes it's like everybody in the church gets a pastor except for the, the spouse and the kids of the pastor. And so how would you apply, I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, my wife, Grace, and our five kids and, and you know, kids that grow up in ministry. Grace was a pastor's kid and, you know, there was a lot that she had to forgive that she saw her parents go through, for example. Um, how would you apply this not only to the leader, but to their spouse, their kids? Because sometimes they can take up an offense um, for their parents or their parent. Yeah, I think, again, like I earlier mentioned, the priesthood of believers, if we really believed it. And I think if we really believed how much we were forgiven, I, it, you know, I, I'm not a guy who starts everything with doctrine. I am an unapologetic Bible guy. I tell people I have a Bible verse for everything, even if it's out of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there's a sense, the more I understand how undeserved my mercy and grace is, the more I can give it to others. And I just don't think we understand that very much. Yeah. So we're willing to forgive if there's some thing brought to my attention, help me understand a little bit better why they did that. Uh, we're willing to uh, go towards my enemies if they look at us and kind of wave going forward. Uh, and again, going towards my enemies, forgiveness doesn't mean I give you a knife to stab me in the back again. Uh, it doesn't mean you're uh, invited to Thanksgiving dinner like those closest to me are, but it means I'm, I'm no longer slandering you. I'm The way I like to describe the people who hurt me, I don't mind being shaped by them. I don't want to be defined by them. Yeah. I think it was and, Billy Graham uh, said, uh, he, he said that he turned his critics into his coaches, that he would listen to what they had to say and he would look for anything mm-hmm. that was true, try to overlook whatever was untrue, and then use that to coach him up to be a better leader. Yeah, because we've talked about it before. There are there are people who are so absolutely poisonous. You know, I try to go towards the enemy. I realize what they're doing. They've got, you know, Molotov cocktail that's thrown in my car. And it's like, well, no, I'm not going back again. But even then, I can forgive them in my head and say, Lord, I'm going to let you deal with it. That's what Romans 12 says. Romans 12 says they don't get off. It just says, Lord says, let me deal with them. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes a step of forgiveness is, is uh, I'm no longer going to be on a crusade praying for you to bring them down, Lord. I'm just going to give them to you and you do what you do. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to be consumed by them. But th- this idea that there's one to four things in my life that I won't forgive, but I'm really generally a forgiving person, is a lie. Hmm. Um well, I think it becomes hard to set a culture of forgiveness if the leader harbors bitterness. Totally. I had, you know, I've had a few times, just a few in my life where I knew the voice of the Lord had spoken to my heart. One absolutely audible and a couple others that where you just knew there was like, this is different. This isn't check it twice. And, and one of them had to do with forgiving somebody who had done me something grievously wrong. No excuse, unbiblical, everything about it. Uh, people said, I need to just take this person out, literally, spiritual advisors. And I'm driving and I hear the Lord say, Larry, you've never forgiven anybody. Hmm. And I remember going, oh, crud. Because, you know, words have more than the words. I knew what he meant. I've forgiven lots of people. I'm not a bitter person. But I had never once forgiven somebody who had done something completely wrong without any excuse, deeply harmful, et cetera. And, and, uh, I just said, okay, uh, it happened to be a person that was on staff at that point. And against all advice, I kept them on staff, hmm. uh, for a while. People thought I was crazy, but it ended up one of the blessed, most blessed times in our church's history. 
because uh, I did the right thing. Now, I wouldn't advise everybody do that with someone who did what this person did. But what what the Lord was teaching me is, Larry, you really don't know what it means to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Hmm. You say, forgive them once they know what they did. Yeah. Number six. Let others win. <laughs> Barnabas has always been my hero uh, next to Jesus in the New Testament. You know, without him, there's no Gentiles. There's no Apostle Paul. There's no, I mean, you could go on and on. John Mark, you stood by uh, when Paul wouldn't. So uh, by let others win, I want to be a Barnabas, not a King Saul. Hmm. Uh, to use a sports analogy, I want to, uh, uh, I want to be a point guard who worries about winning, not, not awards. Uh, Philippians, I love two, three, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, humility of mind, consider others as more important than your, your own. And then he says, why? Because we're supposed to have that attitude. Jesus did. That's what he did. And the end of that passage, the father highly exalts him. So, uh, it's hard when you're competitive and you can't be a good leader if you're not competitive. That's the poison here. Uh, I've never seen a, a good leader build something significant that wasn't competitive. So how can I rein in that competitive spirit? Uh, and I can rein it. Barnabas was a leader. You know, he, <laughs> you don't become what he became without going for it. And he stood up strong in the John Mark little dispute. Uh, but I want to be a Barnabas, not a King Saul. So practically, uh, if you're a, a leader, just practical examples, what does it look like other team members, you know, volunteers, staff, whatever the case is, whomever is sure. contributing practical ways to, to put it into yep. practice. Well, I like the weird picture of those Russian nesting dolls. Mm -hmm. You know, you can just crush one of them. And a lot of us start out as that. And as a church or ministry gets bigger, we feel a little threatened and we can get a lot of dolls underneath us and we get stronger. Nobody can break you when you got five of them under you, or we can get some that are bigger than us. Mm -hmm. And that's the hard part. Uh, hiring people who are better than you at certain things. Uh, many people know, you know, we've always had a teaching team. One of the best things for North Coast Church was when I hired a communicator better than me and Chris Brown. You know, been here 17 years. The last two years has been really the lead pastor. I'm 1B now. Uh, and even that, uh, if Chris wasn't there, I'd probably still be 1A. But there was a time where his name needs to be etched first, not because he begged for it. But you just don't, you know, um, you don't keep people down. So uh, for me, in the real practical thing is, are you willing to surround yourself with people who are better than you at something? And if they rise up and become better than you at everything, are you willing to step aside? Because hmm. it was always Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Then it's Saul and Barnabas. Yeah. You know, so, but King Saul could never do that, you know. And we he should have been thrilled <laughs> that he was part of the 11,000 club uh, instead of worrying that he was only praised for a thousand and David for 10. Yeah. And I think without that spirit, I think succession becomes virtually impossible. Totally. Yeah. You have to leave town, which is imagine someone like me. I came here at, you know, 28 years old, 24 year old wife, all our kids here. And I had to leave town so the next guy could take over, or I had to stay so long that it starts to go in the ground. Uh, no, my job was to leave while we were on our way up, uh, not wait until we had a rebuilding season. Uh, and how hard it would be on the family to say, all of our life has been here, all our friends, spiritual growth, but we got to leave for a year and a half. 
what? How in the world did we get that corporate? Well, and uh, so, you know, kind of the way I've seen healthy transition is you're the dad for a season and then it's kind of like your family, you know, one of the other guys raises up and now he's the dad and you get to be grandpa and grandpa is going to love the kids, but he's also going to help coach up dad. And, and then the church is more like a healthy family um, and sets a precedent, sets an example for healthy families. So, you know, I mean, I know you love Chris and he's a great leader and communicator, but you're there to help him too, you know? Yeah. And here's the thing. Just last night we had dinner with my son, his wife, uh, and they have two kids. And we were talking about this though, as the dad or grandpa. And one of the things Nancy and I've made a big deal of, unless it's absolutely high handed sin, we don't butt in and tell our kids how they ought to raise their kids. Mm-hmm. And all three of my kids are doing certain things a little bit differently during COVID-19, slightly differently, their values in school, you know, and it's like, well, I didn't want my folks telling me how to do my marriage or raise my kid, but I wanted them to love me and to be there when I asked for advice. And it's up to me to ask for a lot or a little. And I find a lot of people in the succession thing demand to be listened to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, your son is your son for a while, but after that, he's a man, Yeah. you know, and, uh, and he's not your child. Uh, and so it's however much or little. And that, that's where I think the rubber sometimes meets the road. It's like, yeah, you're not asking me enough. Or you're doing seven things different than I would. And it's yeah. like, well, so did you. Exactly. <laughs> Number seven? Everyone's using me. Get over it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, servant leadership serves and gives more than it gets. And that's not a cliche. It's a reality. And so uh, when I find myself complaining that I'm being used, I go, man, I don't get it. That's the role of a servant. Uh, A servant gives more than they get. Now in eternity, the economy of heaven, I get it back. But in this life, you know, my church is using me. uh, And that's okay. Uh, But it does help me with the balance of family and all of that, for instance, because why am I going to kill my family for a church that's using me? And five years after I'm gone, I come back and people go, now, who's that guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, life goes on. So uh, let people use you, not in a bad way. We're not talking about healthy boundaries and all that here. We're talking about, you know, demanding uh, that we get back what we give. And I go, well, then you're not a servant. Some days you get way more than you. I feel like in my life I've gotten way more than I gave. But that's not what drives me. And those times where I, I'm on the losing end of the deal, get over it. Yeah, I've never seen a mom look at a little kid and say, I don't feel like this is an equal relationship. I feel like it's just, I give and you take. And, you know, this uh-huh. is just not equitable. But that's, mm-hmm. sometimes that's the relationship. I'm here to help and love and serve. And someday you're, you know, you're going to grow up and take care of yourself or maybe even be a blessing to me, but that's not the motivation. Mm-hmm. And. And I can't control what the end, end of that is. And, you know, scripture uses, I was like a father, I was like a mother. And, you know, that the whole family model, I think, is part of it. But again, just back at the end of the day of servant leadership, you wash their feet and they go, thank you, and go on to the party. And you're sitting there going, excuse me. Uh, everybody loves servant leadership until they get treated like a servant. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, no, I'm just pretending. Yeah, do you think of Jesus washing Judas's feet, knowing what's in his heart? Totally. That's always blown my mind. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, okay, I, I might be able to eke out a foot washing for Peter because there's hope for his future, you know? Uh, but mm-hmm. a Judas, I mean, 
and and for me, um, I think I think at certain times as a leader, if I'm you know really honest, I think I was serving, anticipating that at some point there would be some sort of you know some sort of benefit down the road or some sort of quid pro quo, some sort of. Uh, and when that doesn't happen and you find yourself bitter, frustrated, angry, feeling robbed or jaded, I think it means you, you had a sense of entitlement or expectation in your heart and you weren't just serving. And then it was exposed when you didn't get whatever it was that you were anticipating you had coming. And I think as leaders, we've all had that. And maybe we don't even know it's in our heart until we're disappointed or frustrated because we didn't get back something that we felt we earned as a result of what we had given. Yeah, I, I'm preaching on Acts 9, Saul's conversion this week. And uh, it's an amazing thing when you talk about someone who didn't deserve it. And then God's sovereignty telling Ananias, this is my, like I'm choosing who's in. Mm-hmm. This is my chosen vessel. And he's going to be the, the key leader for the, for the Gentiles and for their kings and for, for Israel. And so we read that and we go, oh, my gosh, you know, amazing, undeserved mercy and grace. And then the next little line is, and I'm going to show him what he's going to suffer. Hmm. You know, and at the end of the day, we all think how cool it was to be Paul, write scripture and all that. Well, not really. I don't think any of us want that job. No. Spend that much time in prison when he talks about his shipwrecks and all the things he went through and then die a martyr. It's like the guy totally got used by the body of Christ, abused by the body of Christ and, and things. And, you know, like, come on now, let's understand what we've been called to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not always an easy road. And when it is enjoy it, you know, I don't want to be that guy who doesn't know how to be Abraham. Uh, I want to be Abraham when he Abraham's me and Job when he Job's me. Yeah. You know, and it's his call. Number eight. When things go wrong, take full responsibility. And when things go well, credit others. Hmm. Uh, captains go down with the ship. Cowards run and blame others. Uh, uh, actually, there's a guy named Jim Collins who's written those business books. And he talks, I think, about a level five leader as someone who goes to the window when all goes poorly and says, hey, it's my fault. And when it all goes well, puts other people in the window. Hmm. Uh, and I remember hearing him saying that. And I go, man, that's I've tried to live that thing. He just articulated, well, uh, I've tried to live that way. It's like give the credit to others. And I so want to step up and say, yeah, here's my part of it, though. Or, oh, well, that was my idea. Or, you know how that is. Yep. Uh, and when things go wrong, I so want to blame other people. Uh, I didn't have all the information, whatever. But uh, a really big, L, healthy leader that people know is faithful, back to the beginning, loving and faithful. It's, it's like, my bad. You're the captain of the ship. And you might not have known what was happening, but you were in charge. Well, and this, I think the importance here too, is it sets culture in an organization. And if the leader, every time something goes wrong, they blame someone else. If that becomes systemic in the entire church ministry organization, then, I mean, every time something goes bad, it literally, it's like the grenade is, you know, got the pin pulled and now we're just passing it around and seeing who, who, who it blows up mm-hmm. in the hands of. And that never yep. resolves the problem. And it, it really creates a fear-based culture where you can't really take any risk because if something goes wrong, you know, it's going to be on you and it's going to blow up in your hands. Yeah, and the problem with a fear-based culture as a leader is if you create that unintentionally with blame or whatever it would be, 
in reality, you're not going to hear about the cancers out there when they're small. You're only going to hear about them when they're big because mm. everybody's afraid to tell you. Mm. And, you know, I, I don't want a cancer diagnosis, but if I'm going to get one, I would like it early. Yeah. Yeah. Before it's at the end stage. And, uh, and so in that, and they, they won't tell you (laughs) if they're afraid, they ain't going to tell you. So what are some ways for a leader practically to own it versus not shifting the blame? So let's say you are the leader, but there is something in the organization. Somebody else made a mistake. Somebody else made a bad decision. Maybe you weren't even cognizant or aware of it. I mean, how does this principle apply? Because we've all had those circumstances where you're like, man, I wish you would have run that by me. I would have told you to go left instead of right. Yep. Yep. Well, I think a major part is the simple words. I'm sorry. (laughs) Whether it's in your marriage, your parenting, your friendships or your church, like just I'm sorry without the but. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry, but da, 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 da. I'm sorry. Now, in this cancel culture we're living in right now. Uh, that's never enough for some people. And that's where you got to just quit worrying about everybody else. Like we talked about earlier, but uh, a lot of it is just, I'm sorry. Uh, we recently had to let a staff member go that was loved, uh, but had some behind the scene things that were not appropriate at all. And, uh, I have to make, uh, we had to make a decision. Do we tell everybody every reason we let this person go? Or we, do we just trust that people are going to, uh, find comfort in the fact we've been people of integrity and honesty over time, but those closest to them aren't going to see it that way. Yeah. Uh, those closest to them are still going to think we blew it or whatever. And I have to simply say, Chris has to say, I'm sorry, I can't share everything with you. Uh, but we think we made the right choice and then just accept kind of what happens. Uh, but if suddenly when I start getting criticized, I go into another mode, uh, you know, then I'm no longer taking responsibility. Here, here's one. If you ever have to let somebody go, mm-hmm. I, I can almost guarantee you their spouse is not going to like you because your, their spouse has been getting the staff member's story. Right. Right. And then I see so many leaders who want to sit down with the whole family to make sure the story's known. And I go, John, dude, it's my job to protect the church and save that marriage. Not make sure he or she knows all of the bad stuff. So they think I'm a hero and no longer like, am I trying to break up that family or I I'm trying to make sure everybody loves me? Like what's going on here? Uh, so really at its core, number eight is about learning to accept flack. That's unfair. Mm -hmm. Like, okay. Uh, you know, step back and ask what is the best thing for everybody in this situation? And it's not always that you, that I'm the hero. Number nine. Uh, when my whispery comes to shout, speak through others. Uh, and th- this one uh, was one that I put down as our church began to grow. Because uh, anybody who's been in the church planning stage, when you're, you know, I came, there were 70 adults meeting in the school. Uh, and shoot, years later, there were only 95. So you know everybody. You don't think of yourself as special. Then the church begins to grow. And you think you just made a comment. But people see it very differently because you're not who you think you are. You are now somebody else in their viewpoint. So I call it the whisper becomes a shout. Uh, You go to somebody and say, hey, man, there were uh, mistakes in the bulletins the last two weeks, typos. Did we do our our proofing by two people signing off? Yeah. Well, maybe we got to make it to three now. And you say it literally that way. They go home and weep Mm -hmm. because, you know, you hurt them. And so uh, some mentors taught me the principle of speaking through others and not having them say, Larry says, because now it sounds like I'm talking in their back. 
behind their back. But when there's things I call it editing on the fly, I would see in the church or the facility, whatever, it was important for me to write them down, give them to our executive pastor. And then he had to own it. He couldn't say Larry says and let him fix it. And that seems so stupid to me. Why can't I say, hey, this needs to be straightened out, whatever. But the fact is no one wants their pastor to be their boss. Mm-hmm. And the more your whisper becomes a shout, the more they want your approval in ways you don't realize. And it's way more hurtful, small critiques and edits than you realize. So I'll give a something comes to mind. Some years ago, I was sending off a young man on our team to go plant a church. And uh, I loved him, enjoyable guy, um, hard worker, very gifted young leader. And uh, it was kind of the send off conversation. I think we had lunch or something. And I was like, okay, anything you need to tell me, anything you need to unburden, you know, anything, I don't want you leaving here with anything between us. I thought we were great. And I thought I was just throwing out a softball question, just, you know, trying to be nice. And uh, he started crying. And I had no idea what I had said or done that had hurt him at that level. And uh, he said, well, you remember when you said this, and it was maybe a couple of years prior, it was a passing comment um, and, uh, and some others were present. And uh, I said, honestly, I, I don't even remember saying that. It was like a, a side comment. I said, uh, I said, I'm sorry. And then I, I said something I shouldn't have said. I said, I didn't know it was that big of a deal. And he looked at me, he was very broken. And he said, it wasn't a big deal, but you are. And I thought, oh my goodness, I, I, I thought I had a hammer with him. I had a Thor hammer, you know? And so for him, it was devastating and I was unaware of it. And this poor guy had carried it for years. And I realized yeah. there are people like that in my life that I value, I respect. And if they say something, I, I've got the volume turned up to 10 for that. And, uh, and I'm thinking about it for the next year. And I, I'd overlooked the fact that for some people, they had me in that position in their life, and I hadn't really considered that. Yeah, that's such a common thing. And for me, of all of these nine, uh, this was uh, the 10. This was the hardest for me because I'm such an open book personality, people who know me. Uh, I'm usually considered rather unassuming, uh, and I just didn't get it. It just made no sense to me. Come on, this is just Larry. We're buddies. Uh, and I would break this all the time. And my XP would come to me and say, Larry, and I'd get, you know, so it was, there's areas of our life that come naturally as the Lord changes us. And there's areas that all of our life, we're just painting by numbers. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can do it when it's right in front of me. But the natural thing is just to be totally open book and real. And it's like, I'm not Larry, you know, even now in my life, I'm, you know, it sounds dumb and I don't mean, I just well, assume everybody listening will get it, but I don't think of myself as a sage. I don't think of myself as a highly successful pastor. I don't, I don't think of myself as any of those things. I'm just Larry, uh, but I'm not that to people who are not in my family and close to me. And I wasn't that to the people in our church. Uh, I was something different, big crowds and all that. And, um, uh, when the whisper is a shout, it's just not very good to whisper. Hmm. Number 10, last but not least. And Jesus, I have nothing to prove and no one to impress. And kind of Mark, you know, over the years, that's like a saying that sometimes gets, you have nothing to prove, no one to impress. It's like, oh yeah, Larry said that. Uh, but that was my key mentor, a guy named Wally Norling, who hardly anybody knows because his fruit always grew on other people's trees. 
Manny pounded that into me from say age 28 to about 32, 33. And I kept thinking, I hope I can one day wake up, believe in that. And I still remember kind of a point in my life where I went, I think that's true. Hmm. It's not aspirational anymore. I really believe it. Uh, because we don't have anything to improve and we don't have anybody to impress. We're just supposed to prepare the horse for battle and then he'll determine victory or defeat. Uh, and I, you know, I can go to defeat uh, battle and get just wiped out by AI. And it doesn't mean I didn't pray enough. I'm a bad leader. It means maybe in the unseen realm, there's an Aiken with stuff hidden under his tent. Or I can have great success. And it doesn't mean I'm a great leader. I can be a Samson ruling for what, about 18 years as this jacked up horn dog, uh, ready to write his book on leadership. And the Lord says, okay, I'm through using you. And yeah. then boom, it's all down. So, Do you think uh, that uh, when we forget that, it contributes to leaders who feel a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, and just really hardcore burnout? I mean, we all know guys yeah. that mm -hmm. they just fried themselves to a crisp. Do you think that that mm -hmm. is some of the consequence of of thinking, you know, I, I do have some people to impress and I do have some things to prove. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, Wally used to tell me, and I agree with him, a lot of it starts with father wounds. Mm -hmm. You know, my respect and love for my father, who was a school teacher and mom, a stay-at-home mom. So they weren't some big Christian leaders or whatever. But I feel like I started life at second or third base because I have zero father wound. Uh you know, I wasn't loved more with good grades. I wasn't loved more as a, a basketball player. The game I scored more. I wasn't always being taken out afterward to the, you know, basket and have him show me, well, you should have done this, could have done that. I, he just loved me. Uh, and I, I think you added that in Wally's early words were so important because the first five years of North, especially first three years of North Coast Church were, were horrible. Nancy and I still call them the dark years. Nothing worked and everything had worked in my life up to that point. Uh, and that's when I started saying, Larry, you have nothing to prove, no one to impress. And I go, well, what if our church stays at 70, you know, and 95 at year five is what we were. Hmm. And it's he, like, it doesn't matter. Prepare the horse for battle and everything else you did blew up good. Everything else you're doing here was blowing up bad. Jesus loves you just as much. He's told you what to do, do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you added my dad and no father wound, and then the mentor who wasn't always judging me because we're not up and to the right, I can't tell you the freedom that gave. It's just unbelievable. Well, then you can actually enjoy whatever it is you're doing. Totally. Yeah. I mean, once I gave up my dream of pastoring a big church, because I thought maybe I always had big ministries because I was a part of big ministries. Uh, I was just totally different. I could go to a conference and say, you know, how we always ask, how's it going? Yeah. And somebody say, how's it going? I go, well, we grew by three. And you're kind of muttering my breath. And if you know my gift mix, you'd really be impressed. Because yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, it's okay. Maybe at the end of my life, we'll hit two, three hundred. And once that was, the, the curse of potential expectations was taken off. Uh, lo and behold, the church started to take off. Hmm. But here's the thing, you know, if people hear me say that and go, oh, that's the secret to growing my church. I go, no, no, you don't understand. When I took that burden off, we didn't grow right away. Okay. We grew by 15 people. And then the next year by 30 people. It was not worthy of an article in outreach. Uh, but I was now happy. Mm -hmm. And 
I think I would have been just as happy if we were 300 rather than the massive size we are now. Yeah. Because uh, I learned to find my identity somewhere else. So in that, I'm going to ask you one uh, story in closing. Uh, on various occasions, uh, you and Nancy were kind enough to let us come over, hang out. So we've been at your house occasionally on Sunday after church. We've adopted this at the Driscoll House. It's now my favorite time of the week. Just in closing, I mean, you're talking about leadership, health, and good rhythms, and also creating space and margin to where, you know, you can love your wife, love your kids, you can have a healthy family and a healthy ministry. Um, what Sunday look like, Sunday afternoon, many, if not most, for the Osborne family? Well, Nancy never cooks anything in our case. Not that others shouldn't. I think you guys do or whatever, but because we want that totally be voluntary. Of course, our kids are older. They're all married with their own kids by the grace of God, walking with Jesus, going to North Coast, living nearby, going to North Coast campuses. And we'll get a text. Hey, can we come over? Then another one. Hey, is anybody coming over? And yeah, just lots of Sundays, the whole crew's here. And then I got to go run out and buy some food or Nancy maybe can quickly throw it together. Uh, but it's a great joy. And it's the, it's the reward of uh, not having sold my soul to the church. I worked hard. I did my part, but they didn't get every night out. My kids got got me as a dad. And I think uh, my goal was that they would love Jesus, love the local church, because I assume they'd probably move someday and not go to North Coast. Uh, and they would think that dad being a pastor was the greatest job in the world. Uh, and now I'm living the backside of that. And yeah, most Sundays, it's I. there's there's nothing greater than to have grown kids who love to be around you. Mm -hmm. it's like that's the great joy it beats you know you and i've both spoken to thousands and thousands of people you had some online things and just like huge huge massive numbers and it's a little bit of a rush but nothing is like the rush of having kids who love jesus and love you and want to be around and nothing's sadder than crowds that love you and kids that don't i'm gonna leave it right there i love you pastor larry thank you for your time my friend tell nancy we said hi <laughs>